Alrighty, we're going to read the Bible together now. So if you can come and find your seats, that would be great. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 12 today. So it's the whole chapter. Um, It's found on page 937, if you've got one of the church Bibles, 937. Um, At City Light, we study the Bible each week um, because we believe that it's um, God's living word to us. And as we um, read it and as it's taught to us, um, God speaks to us personally. So um, if you can follow along, it'll also come up on the screen behind me there. So Acts chapter 12, starting at verse verse number one. About that time... King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too, during the days of the unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church." On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. Then the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what took place through the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that led into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and and immediately the angel left. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. When he realised this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door in the gateway and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognised Peter's voice and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the doorway, at the gateway. You're crazy, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. Then he departed and went to a different place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what could have, happened, what could have become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been very angry with the Tyrians and Sidonians. Together they presented themselves before him, and having won over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. The populace began to shout, "'It's the voice of a god and not of a man.'" At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he became infected with worms and died. Then God's message flourished and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem after they had completed their relief mission on which they took John Mark. Well, good afternoon. Good to have you here. My name's Gav. I never saw back, but you know, I think that's very funny, but whatever. Um, (laughs) 
it was funny. I, uh, I told Jess, Jess said, oh, I wish I was there to see that. <laughs> so no sympathy for me either. So um, good to have you here. Uh, a big welcome if you're new and newish, and we do hope you enjoy your time. Uh, as Kes was just saying, we spend a lot of time in the Bible because we believe that's how God speaks to us, is primarily through his word. And so we want to hear what God has to say to us because we have people here who love him. Um, just want to say briefly on City Kids, it's really cool to see Katie and Mel take over that ministry. Uh, when we first started City Light, I was really keen that um, Katie you know, didn't have to do any role that she didn't want to do. And she had, I just wanted her to, um, you know, her primary role at, at, at the moment is to look after our kids and raise them together with, with her and I. But um, I remember about a month ago, she came to me and said, look, I wanna, I wanna, I'm really passionate about um, raising children and I want to take over City Kids. And so... Um, I'm really excited for the way God's going to continue to grow City Kids here at City Light. So that's really cool. So if you're only part of that ministry, that's a great ministry to be part of, um, raising the next generation of leaders and uh, people, for, people for the Lord. So get on to that. You've got a great leader, my wife. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk to God for us and ask that he would speak to us. And not that, as I say, most weeks we would know more things or we would be cold or hardened to his word, that we would be humble and sit under his teaching and sit under what he has to say to us, knowing that he's in, he is addressing us. So let me pray and uh, we'll get going. God, we want to thank you that uh, you are living and active. Uh, there is none like you, nor will there ever be. Uh, you are sovereign over all things and uh, you love us with an everlasting love. Lord, you say that you uh, have numbered even the very hairs of our head. Uh, you know our thoughts and the words before they are on our lips. Father, so you know where we are this afternoon. We've come here um, either tired or, or worried or anxious or in a good place. Father, wherever we are at this afternoon, we want to pray that uh, you would again address our hearts, that you would feed our soul. Lord, you say your word is sweeter than honey and it gives life to our soul. And so we want to pray that um, you would use me to prepare a feast for us so that we can come to know and love the Lord Jesus more and more. Lord, bless our time, we ask, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I've said to you a few times, uh, my, tastes, my taste in movies are quite simple. I'm a simple man with simple pleasures. <laughs> don't know why I said that. Anyway, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to think too hard. I, uh, I, uh, I want a good story, and I want the good guys to win. I want to walk away feeling like, yeah, good guys win, bad guys suck. Yes, it's great, right? So last weekend... With that in mind, I went out to see the new Jason Bourne film. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, now, if you know the Bourne films, there are three of them. Uh, the, before this one with, with Matt Damon, then there was a weird spin-off, Legacy, who cares? It wasn't Matt Damon. Um, and so the new Bourne, uh, uh, the new Bourne camp, Matt Damon was back. I'm a fan. So we, uh, we went and saw that. Um, uh, so uh, the great thing is that Katie also loves action films. She loves them, and um, probably more than me. And she loves the Bourne films more than me, but probably because there's Matt Damon in there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but that's okay. I'll, I'll roll with that. Um, but she loves action films. We've really we've bonded over that. Uh, as I mentioned before, we, that one of her favorite movies is, is Taken. You know, the, the, right? She loves Taken. I love Taken. We love each other. Right? That, so that's... <laughs> That's the centre of our marriage. No, it's not. Um, it, uh, it, it's not. We both love uh, action films. And so um, we went with great excitement and anticipation to see Jason Bourne. And uh, we were sitting there, watched the movie next to each other, and uh, it was great. It was everything we'd hoped for in the Bourne film, car chases, action scenes, fight scenes, you know, predictable, sometimes non-existent plot, um, not much talking. <laughs> we just want to see bashing. And, um, and that's what we got. It was great. 
And uh, the most important thing is the good guy wins. Sorry to spoil it. This morning I said that and someone went, boo. I'm like, whoa. I went, whoa, heckling from my own shirt. I named and shamed Paul Davies. Anyway, um, <laughs> I love that. The, the good guy wins. No one, can, no one can beat him. No one can outsmart Jason Bourne. He's always two steps ahead, no matter what happens. When his back's against the wall, he's been shot in the leg, shot in the face, and he's still fighting. It's the best. And there's even one scene, I think, where you even beat a guy with a rolled-up newspaper. Like, it's the best. Like, the guy had, like, a big machete and born found a paper and, like, and beat the guy. It's great. He, he never loses. He never loses. The good guy always wins in that movie. Uh, and it's great. And we went with a couple other people who are a bit more of the, the hating type. And um, I won't name them. And, uh, and they weren't as keen on the movie as Katie and I were. Katie and I were just high-fiving, going, this is the best movie, born, yeah, you know, and... Um, and they just felt it was too predictable and too much like other Bourne films. And I, and I get their point, but that's the best part because you know what you're going to get. The good guys win. The good guys always win. And the only slight difference is this is a different baddie, but it's always the good guys winning. Um, and, you know, you can leave the cinemas feeling like everything's in order, the world's in order because Bourne wins, good, good win, evil loses. And that's the way it should work, right? The good guys win, the bad guys lose, and justice is done. That's what we all want. We want good to prevail. And I think, uh, I think deep down we all want that, justice to be done. We see that when we, when we see uh, evil done in the world. Often the cry is for justice and someone to fix the problem that is going on and, and who's going to do that? And there's always that cry of how can this happen? Will evil win? And I think that's why there's been you know, that, that, that the rise again of superhero films, uh, which again, I also love that, where, the, where a hero comes and saves the day. There's a rescuer who comes and fixes all the wrongs and makes them right and brings justice. Um, but that's the movie world. We don't live in that world. We don't live in that world. We live in the real world where things go wrong regularly, where, where people get hurt regularly, where, where situations don't go the way we want, where people let you down, where we feel the consequences of, of our failures, of, our, of sin. And this is the world we live in. And I don't have to tell you that because I'm sure that most of us here experience that day by day. And it can be worrying and scary living in a world where this can happen where we don't have a superhero or a rescuer to come and stop the evil from happening to us. And there's a real possibility where things will go wrong. And often if you've been hurt or stung or, or experienced pain and hurt, we become so much more worried about it will happen again. And we live in fear of it happening again to us and think, how am I going to cope next time? Now, if we think about the current, like our current time and where we are in history and and there's a real sense of fear where we're heading as a world, as, an, as, as, as a country. In the Western world especially, the rise of terrorism, all the attacks that have taken place. And I don't know if you've noticed, but look, I, I try and read the, 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 the um, Sydney Morning Herald each day. And every day there's almost a uh, new attack. And is, it, is this a terrorist attack? All the time there's this, there's this fear going on that we are under attack. And we are worried. And we worry that things are going to get worse. We're worried of the unknown. We keep thinking, will evil prevail? Will things get worse? Will, will, on a personal level, you know, if we're finding things hard, will my life get any better? Will this hard season ever end? How long will it go on for? Will my circumstances change? Why do bad things keep happening and will they continue to? Is there any hope? Will justice be done and will someone come and rescue me? We look at a passage today, um, Acts 12, and I've really enjoyed um, working on it this week and thinking about it and seeing what God is saying to me to, to, to communicate to you. And 
we read in this passage which Kez just read for us is we read of one of the main church leaders in the early church who is killed. But not just killed, he's beheaded. He's beheaded by the king of the day. It's James. He's one of the leaders in the, in the early church movement. He's one of the apostles. And I think what we read here in this chapter is that Luke, or God, he really contrasts two powers going on at the same time. Two kings going on. King Herod, the king of the day, versus the king of the universe, God. And Luke wants his readers, both, both, us, both, both us and the early church, to know that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances are, the, the king of the universe will prevail. He will win. This chapter today, I think, is supposed to be an encouragement and, and, and uh, a comfort to us, letting us know that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what it looks like around us, that we are not without hope. Because there is a God who loves us and who is in control and sovereign over every single thing. And he is more powerful than anything else in this world. This is what you read here in Acts 12. And I want to show you this today. I'm going to walk through this passage as I do most weeks. And I'm going to give you three observations to show, you I'm, to show you what I'm tracking. Here they are here. The battle lines are drawn. Uh, the champion acts and he wins means we win. Let me read to you just the first five sentences and then uh, I'll, I will show you a few things about this. It says this on the screen behind me. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, John's brother, with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of the unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. So you read here at the start that King Herod, the king of the day, uh, he attacks the early church. And this Herod, if we want to think of who Herod is in history, he was the grandson of uh, King Herod, who was in control when Jesus was born, who ordered the killing of all those children because he was fearful of Jesus being the king. He's the grandson of that king. Okay, so you can see it runs in the family. And he was, this king, King Herod, at this time was brought up to Rome, in Rome, and uh, made king in Judea and the surrounding territories by Gaius the emperor. That's the, that's the historical context of what's going on at this time. We read in sentence two, this king orders, actually orders the beheading of James. Now James is one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church. Uh, he was one of the three, if you remember the, uh, the, the Gospels, with Peter, John and James, one of the, the, the closest to Jesus, almost the inner circle of disciples. And he's one of them. So this is a huge thing. He's arrested and then he is beheaded. And I wonder if you could think about this for a second and, and what was going on in the early church. One of their church leaders, one of their founding fathers, who was taken and then publicly beheaded. And I think the sense in the church would have been real fear. And not only that, they arrested the other leader and put him into jail and going to the same thing as they did to James, to Peter. That was the plan. You know, it would be almost like if, you know, you were at a church or just say, you know, we were here and um, Jez or I were arrested and Jez was beheaded, not me because I don't want to be beheaded. Um, Jez was beheaded and I was arrested. And I, can you imagine how that would have felt for the church? When your leaders by the government and the authorities are arrested and killed being followers of Jesus. The feelings about the church would have been, uh, been horrible fear. And Peter was given special attention, four squads of four guards, and one man uh, with, in a jail cell with iron gates and all that around him, chained up, he can't go anywhere else. And it says there that, he, uh, that King Herod did this to make the Jews happy. 
This church would have, seen, would have seemed in absolute turmoil. One of their leaders beheaded, the other one arrested and awaiting to be killed as well. This king, the authority, the ruler was against it. He was just aiming for them. He was coming for them. He wanted to extinguish the church. Extinguish it just by killing off their leaders so the church would just scatter. And it would seem like if you're in that church at that time seeing James beheaded, Peter arrested, it would seem like there's no hope. There's no way out. This is it. King Herod would win. Herod clearly did not like Christians, didn't believe in Jesus, and he had drawn a line in the sand to, have a, to, to, to aim for them, to, 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 to battle them. And that's what he was doing. We read here that the church, what does the church do in response? That's what I, uh, I love about this, is that sentence five, the church prays. They go to their sovereign heavenly father and they pray and they ask for help against this King Herod. But I think it's worth asking this question of why would King Herod do this? Why would King Herod uh, go after the leaders of the church and kill them? Why would he do that? Why would he declare war on the church and on Christians? Let me try to illustrate this. Now, a, a, a little a, a while ago, a long while ago now, um, you may not know this, but I actually had long hair. Now, I don't mean long-ish hair. I mean like down my back long hair, right? Long flowing locks. Beautiful locks. In my, uh, in my uh, teenage years, my late teenage years. I've had enough of hecklers today, Bonifan. Um, no, there is one photo, but I can't... Uh, I think only Jacob Mitchell has seen it so far, and I'm sure he has it. Now, he'll bring it out one day and just get me. But anyway, whatever. Yeah, Jacob's got it already. There it is. Thank you, Jacob. Appreciate it, man. Uh, anyway, I had a brother who was older than me who I looked up to, and he had long hair, and he was here to be like... And I remember I was playing rugby and had long hair, and so I would get my hair back, and I would just get electrical tape, and I would just tape it up just to get out of my face. And, um, and uh, I would finish playing rugby, and they'd be full of mud and dirt, and there'd be all sort of stuff, and you'd be pulled every game. Like, everyone would grab you and call you a girl and pull your hair. That's happened most games of rugby. And, um, you know, and I felt like I, you know, I felt like I was like Goliath, you know, with long hair. My strength was in my hair. Um, and so I never brushed. It was pretty messy and knotty. And, yeah, dreads would just grow by themselves because it's so, like a mat. But it didn't smell, so it was okay. Um, and uh, anyway, before I met Kate, before I met my wife, my now wife, Katie, there was this girl that I liked, and she, I remember meeting her for the first time, we were chatting, and then she said to me at one point, you know, I don't really like guys with long hair. I'm like, that's a good opening line, isn't it? You know, just to... So I thought, you know, in my head, what do I do? You know, do I keep my long flowing locks? Or do I cut it all off and hope this girl might like me? What do I do? It was such a dilemma that I was in. So, what did I do? Hair or girl? I cut my hair off. Ooh, I, I cut it all off and my strength went. No, I didn't. Um, I cut all my hair off and uh, the problem was though, when I cut my hair off, um, people would say to me, Gav, why did you cut your hair for? And I couldn't say because I wanted this girl to like me, so I'd say, you know, the manly thing, you know, oh, because it got in the way of my rugby game, you know, like, I wanted to play better rugby and run faster. It wasn't true at all. I just wanted this girl to like me. And so I cut my hair, but I was scared because I couldn't tell them exactly why I cut my hair off because then they would say, why did you do that and, and whatever, so I had to hide it. And so I was, um, uh, I wanted the affections and the attention of this girl, and uh, so I was motivated to do something like cutting my, cutting my hair off. And it didn't really work anyway. She didn't like me. Anyway, I got a new haircut and no girl. Great. <laughs> but, um, 
That's my motivation was to try and win this girl to cut my hair off. But, but as we think about, as we think about, uh, as we think about King Herod, um, and think about what motivates this man uh, to to seek out James, to to behead him, to arrest another key leader, and to and to want to execute him. What what's driving? What's behind uh, this intention? And I think as you read, as you as you read, as Kez read that before for us, and if you read this text carefully, you see what his intention, what's what motivates this guy. He was driven purely by self-exaltation and wanting the praise of people. You read in sentence 2 and 3, he kills James, and then it says there, and he saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It seems like, in other words, what drove him was his desire to have this popular, powerful ruler. He loved the praise of of people, and especially the praise of, 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 of power of saying, if you step out of line, if you don't know what I want you to do, I will kill you. If you rise up and be a leader and threaten my authority, I will kill you. If anyone threatened that, that position of power that he had, he would take them down. He had this desire for power, and it led him, and praise, and it led him to oppose Christianity. He didn't want to have anyone else to, to, to uh, have a similar power to his or be exalted. Peter and uh, James were, were leaders in the church. So because they were leading the church, he would take them down. We see again in sentence 20 to 23, we're on the screen behind me, we get this weird story of where people from, from Tyre and Sidon are there, which is like a coastal city in Syria. And uh, this, these countries depended on Herod for food. And so King Herod would, would give them an amount of food um, so they wouldn't go hungry. And uh, something must have come up between these two, these two countries and Herod was threatening to not give them food anymore. And so they had to come to Herod and grovel and beg and say how great he is so that Herod wouldn't be angry and stop their food supply, which, which seemed exactly what Herod wanted, to be pleased, to be praised. He must have himself exalted and these people to grovel to him and say, no, you're, you're amazing, you're great, so they can keep giving food out. You know, we read there also, it, it, Herod gives a public speech telling everyone how great and powerful he is. That's what he does in sentence 21. Then in sentence 22, we read that people began to shout, it's the voice of God and not of a man. And Herod loves it, it's what he wants. We read there that Herod doesn't say, no, no, you're wrong, I am a man. It's what he wants. They're praising him as a God, not a man. And he rolls with it. So as you read this, we see that Herod's two desires are quite plain. He wants to be exalted and popular for his power, and he will do anything to win that attention to win people's praise, even if it means murdering people. And this longing for power, this praise of power to be recognized, I think that can sometimes resonate with us, right? To be noticed, to get people to like you. So people can, 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 uh, can praise who you are. It can be often a big motivator and why we do and why we act and why we say certain things. You know, we often will do or say something to be recognized or liked or noticed, or we sometimes we won't do things or, or say things just in case people think bad of us. Come from the same place, the motivating factor for a lot of what we do and say, and I'm like this as well, is acceptance. We want others to think well of us, to be recognized as important, to be seen as someone of worth and of value. And I think a lot of a lot, uh, sometimes a lot of a lot of this comes out of a place of just wanting, wanting people to like us. 
You can call it the fear of man. You can call it the living for the praise of people. You can call it being insecure. Call it what you want, but it's all very similar. All come from the same place. And if you scratch the surface, you see that a lot of what we do, and, and often in my life, what I do is, is motivated by this. And it just looks different in different people. It won't look all the same. You can be, you can be quiet and shy and insecure, and, and, and why do I think people think of you so you sort of hide away? Or you can be overconfident uh, and compensate and say things and, you know, the humble brag or dressing to impress or, or shame. All these things are often motivated by the same thing. Fear of others. What people think of you? And I've said this a thousand times, I think it's such a major issue for us in our culture, that living like this, and I know it because I've lived like it, is so tiring because you can never control what others think of you. You're always at the whim of them. And so we often build who we are based on what others think of us because we think nothing of ourselves. And what I love is, I love the Bible addresses this, God addresses this because he knows who we are. He knows what we're like. And so he addresses this in so many ways. I love that in God's economy, in God's kingdom, and how he operates is so radically different from the world around us. God says on a number of occasions, he says in one, one place is James 4, 6, he says, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is not for those who exalt themselves. If you keep reading Acts 12, just after Herod has praised and he's thanking people in his robes and loving it. Sentence 23 says, At once after you had said this, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down dead. Why? Because he did not give glory to the true God. We see right then and there the instance of God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, true humility, and often what we think is humility is thinking less of myself. That's not what humility is. True humility is knowing who you are in light of who God is. It's having a right perspective. That's God says, that's my path to freedom. Remembering we are but creatures so reliant for everything on the Creator. Breath, uh, heartbeat, every good thing that we have in our life comes from the hand of God. Everything. I love what, I love what um, Jesus says in his very first sermon uh, in Matthew 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It goes for two and a half chapters. And the very first thing he says is the thing called the Beatitudes. I've known the Beatitudes. And I'm just thinking about this, and I love what he says in the Beatitudes. The first thing he says is, get this, Jesus says, blessed or, you can translate it happy if you want, blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit. You think, how, how, is, how are they happy? Stick with me. Happy or blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, if you're poor in spirit, you know your need. You know your spiritual need. You know you're spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus is saying here, here is that those who know their weakness, who know their absolute need for Jesus, they need his, their need for his love and his mercy and his grace and pursue him and rely on all things for, from him, they're the ones who are blessed. They're the ones that are happy. Because they have a true understanding of who they are and of their need. And they run to the right person for their identity, for that need. They're not going out there, they're going up there. And being centered on that. And Jesus says they're the happy ones, they're the blessed ones. Because they get it and they know that there's now the kingdom of God. 
You know, I could go through the whole of Beatitudes here, but, you know, blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart. Jesus is saying, blessed and happy are those who know they're in need. And once they know they're in need, they know where to go to get their fill. They don't pretend there's something or they're nothing or compensate or look out there horizontally. They find their worth and their meaning and their value in the only place that will ever be stable, in Christ. And they run to that one. And there, Jesus is saying, the creator of the universe, the creator of us says, they are truly free. They're the free ones. And out of that freedom, they can go and love and serve and interact in good relationships because they are not looking to get anything from that relationship. That's how God has created the universe. He created us. God says, I oppose the proud, but give more grace and grace to the humble. So we have from the first five sentences that Herod sets himself up against the church. And therefore God, James is killed, Peter arrested, but the church is praying. And I want to, I want to show you what happens next. This is really cool. Um, and this is my second point because God arrives. So I put it here, the champion arrives. And uh, I want to show you how God puts Herod, and this is the king, the ruler of all here, uh, um, Herod of the, of the day, he puts him in his place, and he shows everybody who he really is. Let me show you three ways he does that. Firstly, and this is quite brief, firstly, he rescues Peter. God arrives, and he rescues Herod's pride, uh, 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 his, um, his prized prisoner from under his nose. So Herod has Peter locked away with, you know, 16 guards around him, chains, jail, gates, the whole deal. And God says, that's not going to happen. And he walks in by his angel and frees Peter and walks straight out through the front doors with no one touching him. The angel wakes Peter up, takes the chains off, leads him out. And then verse 11 sums up what's happening. It says, then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. The Lord rescues Peter from under Herod's nose. The Lord, show, the Lord shows Herod, uh, who, who uh, was more powerful. The first thing is he shows uh, Herod that he can do whatever he wants to whenever he wants to. Second thing he does is uh, he takes Herod's life. We just read this before. You look at this at Sentence 20 to 23, uh, right in the middle of, of Herod being up the front in all this pomp and, uh, and, religion, and all this um, royal ceremony with all these robes on, everyone's worshipping Herod and saying, you're not a man, you're a god, all this sort of stuff. Bam, God intervenes and says, no, you're not. I'll bring you down to where you belong. And read Sentence 23 on the screen behind me, it says this, at once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he became infected with worms and died point here is to say to everyone who will listen is that Herod is not a god. God is God. He is more powerful than anybody else and he is to be honored and glorified. And Luke through this account teaches us that it's insane to commit treason against the creator of the universe. You can't win. You will not win. Thirdly and finally how God puts Herod in his place and I love this sentence 24. It's really short. It says, then God's message flourished and multiplied. What was Herod's plan? Was to squash the church. Not spread out, but squash it and extinguish it. What does God do? He goes, I'll make it grow more. And a lot of what you were trying to squash it? I'll make it flourish. I do the opposite. He turns the tables entire, entire, entirely on Herod. 
And he made the word of God multiply and grow. And this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing and, and, and still is doing today. And it's recorded for us to take, take heart that he is building his church and not Herod, not any powers or authorities or governments or kingdoms can stop God's plan. God says he will build his church. He says, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades and death will not stop it. And I love what we see here. And we see the one who's in control. It's like God says, okay, I'll, I'll find the most powerful person at that time. Let's say Herod. He gets Herod and he says, I'll show you. I'm more powerful than that guy. And this early church it would have seemed small and weak. God's saying, that's my church and I'll make it flourish. And he does. Now, as many of you know, um, there's no way I could get up to here and talk this afternoon without mentioning my friend Chloe Dalton. <laughs> so um, Chloe is a, a member of City Light. She's from 11 a.m. and she was competing in the Olympics this morning, representing Australia in the Women's Sevens Rugby Competition. Um, 2.30 this morning, the campaign kicked off with Columbia. Anyone get up and watch it? I did. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fanboy, right here. <laughs> anyway, shuffled out. My alarm went off at 2.28. Katie turned to me and said, you're hardcore. I'm like, yeah, I am. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. And anyway, she was, she was in bed, shuffled out for like 10 minutes and back into bed. Anyway, she scored a try. It was like great to watch her play. And I was messaging her this week, thinking she wouldn't, she, she wouldn't respond. She did. I was pretty, pretty impressed that Chloe and I are pretty close like that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure who's more excited, me or her at the moment, but I'm pretty excited. I've been telling everyone, my friend Chloe's in the Olympics, and yeah, that's how I refer to her now, my friend Chloe. Um, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's exciting. And they're, they're favourites to win the gold medal. They won the world, world championship. They're favourites to win the gold medal, which will be played on Tuesday morning. And uh, if they do win, I want to take her and her medal to Jet School for show and tell. <laughs> and I'm not, even I'm not even joking, that will happen. Uh, I'm so excited, and uh, I've been saying to people, I'm so genuinely excited, I know a genuine Olympian. Like, I know a genuine Olympian, a sports person, sport, my love. Um, I, know, I know someone who's a genuine sports person. Um, and, uh, and it's been so exciting, I've been trying to get my kids to get it, and they just don't get it yet. Like, it's the Olympics, and like, whatever Olympics, I don't care. I'm like, no, it's the Olympics, and like, a gold medal jet. It's like a gold medal. It's like, yeah, but daddy, you have trophies. I'm like, yeah, thanks, buddy. I appreciate that, man. Uh, which is pretty cool. You've got trophies, but yeah. Um, I was like, Jenny, they're better than my trophies. You know, it's a gold medal. And it was funny this morning, we watched uh, the Fiji game at like 7.30 or whatever. And uh, that was so exciting. They finally got it. Indy goes, daddy, is that mean Chloe's famous? I'm like, yeah, she's famous, Indy. She's famous. It's great. And they were like, yeah, Chloe, woo! Just screaming scream at the screen, having a great time. So we finally get that it's cool and great to be associated with Chloe. Um, uh, they had her at City Kids. They're like, we had her at City Kids, you know, like, great. This is my teacher. And so they're getting it. It's great to be known, uh, to have a friendship with this Olympian, which is really cool. And, um, but it's like, you know, it's like all of it. we, we want to be associated with people who are successful, who win, who achieve, and, uh, who, can't, and who, who are doing great things. And what, what I've been thinking about this week with Acts 12 and, uh, and, I, and I see the main point of this, of this passage is that God will win. He cannot be beaten. That you can throw the, the, the most powerful people at him, humans, and it will not phase him. It will not thwart his plans. And what I love, what I took away from this this week is that if you are on his side, you will not lose. 
you will not lose. Just think about the original readers of Acts, suffering for being followers of Jesus, you know, giving up potentially families, jobs, whatever, being called a weird cult because they followed Jesus, following apparently a dead man, and meeting in secret, being fit of being, uh, being, having a fear of being killed, looked so unimpressive in the eyes of the world. Then God gives them Acts 12 and says, look, I'm with you. I'm with you. They may feel small and insignificant in the Roman Empire. They may feel like they're being overpowered and at the whim of this political leader. But the truth is, and what this says here is, that if you, are, if you stay with Jesus, you will win. No matter who opposes you. And if you oppose Jesus, you will lose. And so this, this encouragement here is, he's saying, take heart, be bold, be courageous, and do what I give you the task to do. Go and make disciples, knowing that you will win. And I love what God does here. It shows the church that you and I, the most powerful person in our day, if we think about our day now, there is more and more animosity coming towards the church. We see that happening more and more and more. But it doesn't matter. Because no government, no authority, no king, no ruler, whoever it is, will not defeat Jesus and his church. It will stand. It will stand. No one or any can stop God and his plans from growing his church. No circumstance, no situation can change his plans. It's not like God's up in heaven just going to Jesus. Whoa, you see what's going on down there? That's crazy. Is that evil down there? That's four. What's going on? That is, that is not God. He's up there in control, sovereign over everything. There's no evil that catches him off guard. He has a plan and a purpose for every single one of his people in this world. And he's powerful, and he is almighty, and he is sovereign. And for this, this is to give us courage and boldness and confidence and comfort, saying we are on his side. I love Psalms. I want to show you this. I love this. this is, I think this is really articulates what we're talking about here. It's one of my favorite Psalms. This is this. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. And the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. I love this. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I love this picture in my mind of God sitting up in heaven, just saying, Do they know who I am? And he laughs and scoffs at those who take their stand against him. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Those who are against him here on earth are, are, are but creatures. And they're trying to stand up against the creator, the one who simply spoke creation to being. You know, I love, there will, with God, there will only ever be one outcome. He wins. If you're on his side, there is only ever one outcome. You win. And I, and I love the last line. He says there that God is saying that I've installed my king. You can have your kings, but I've installed my king, my eternal king, on, the, on my holy mountain forever. You read in the Bible that God has installed his king, Jesus, on his throne. He's the one who sustains all things. He is the judge of all. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. If you want to read what Jesus is like, you go and read Revelation. 
In Revelation 19, it describes who Jesus is in all his might, in all his glory, in all his power. There's a great passage in, uh, um, in Colossians 1, 15 and 20, it's the supremacy of, supremacy of Christ. And the writer Paul says that Jesus, through uh, that, uh, this Jesus, everything was made through him, by him and for him. All things were made through him, by him and for him. He was before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. He sustains all things. He is the image of the invisible God. And this King, this King Jesus came to earth, God in the flesh. And as Colossians 1.20 says, he came and he died on a cross on a rescue mission to bring us peace and to reconcile you and I, us, us mere creatures, to the Creator again. And I love this King is not like Herod. This king does not lord his power over people or want the praise of people and saying, please like me. That is not our King Jesus. He's not motivated by fear and what others think of him. This king, this King Jesus is motivated by love. Love for you and I. And he came, what Mark 10.45 says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the king we worship. That's the true king. This is God's king, King Jesus. And this king did not stay dead when he died on the cross for our sin, but he rose to, rose to life defeating sin, Satan, and death. He rose physically and now seats, he's now seated at the right hand right now of the living God, still active, and he's there right now as our saviour, as our brother, and as our friend. And he says, fear not, for I am with you and I have won. The back end of John, where he's about to leave his disciples, Jesus says, Fear not, for I have overcome the world. Jesus wins. And the question as we, as we think through this is, are we on his side? And do you trust this king? Do you trust this king? But finally, if we to bring this all together, this is, this is a lot shorter, this third point is, if, if he wins, we win. God has installed his king on the throne. He's defeated sin, death, and Satan, the things that hold us down. There's no power, no ruler, no king that will stand against him or his plans. And if we are on his side then, and he prevails, we prevail too. But what does that mean? What does that mean that we win? Often I think we can sometimes, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we'd think in our heads that if, he, if God is for me, the one who is sovereign over all things, then that means that my life should be a lot easier. That I should expect everything to go well. But that's, that's not the case, because that's more of a prosperity. I give to God, he gives me things back. But sometimes we can f- suddenly feel like, come on God, like, come through for me. Uh, I've done this for you, you, know, you do it for me. You know, I'm on the winning team, you know, come on. And we, we can sometimes have this sense of entitlement, like, I've given, you, I've given up things for you, God. It's almost like, like God owes us. He owes me something. I think this is a dangerous thought, because if you think, if you, if you mine at this, this is more this idea of, actually, we think, we, God owes us nothing. If we believe truly, and the Bible says we are saved by grace and grace alone, then we, we don't deserve any good thing from God. But instead, what we get, we get, we get life and we get relationship and peace and righteousness all through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in Jesus, what sort of life did he have? Well, he had a life that was full of suffering and pain and hardship. Look at the book of Acts. You have Peter, James, John, Paul, all suffering again and again for Jesus, being persecuted for being a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, if it was hard for me, it would be hard for you. No servant is greater than his master. 
We see that, and we live in this, we live in this time, the Bible describes it, we live in this time of this now but not yet. So Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan on the cross, but we still feel the effects of that, and we are still waiting for that final victory to come. So we live in this time where we're, we, we are not under the, under the hold of sin and Satan and death anymore. We still feel the consequences of it. It's still there. We feel the effects of death and pain and hurt and suffering and injustice. But I think what we often forget is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, a new day has dawned. A new day has dawned. We live in the last days. A day is coming where justice will be done, where all things will be made, all wrongs will be made right, where all the sad things come untrue. And this is what the Bible calls hope. Now, we use the word hope a bit differently. We would often say, oh, I hope this will happen, I hope this happens. The Bible says, no, hope is a sure thing, like it will happen. And Hebrews says, this hope is the anchor for the soul. As we live and we wait for final, this final victory, to experience this final victory, this is the hope for our soul. We've been rescued from a helpless state. We are heading home to meet our victorious king. Eternity waits. And Colossians 3, 1 says, Set your minds on things above, where you belong, where you are, where you are seated at the right hand of God. We will fully experience in that final day the full weight of Jesus' victory. Well, I don't think we can even imagine the relief, the, the, the overwhelming sense of joy we will have when we see him face to face. And I think, you know, in part we can, we can experience this victory now and again here on earth in small ways, but I think in the final day when we experience that, we can't even comprehend what it will be like. When we are on the winning side. But God also says when we, 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 while we wait, we are not alone. We are filled with his presence. We are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We are comforted by him, led by him, empowered by him to keep running the race and keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to fight the good fight and to go and make disciples he's called us to do. You, know, you may feel small and insignificant. You may feel overpowered or, or troubled by what's going on in the world or your circumstances or the way the future may be. But the truth is, if you stay with Jesus, you win. If you oppose him, you lose. So this passage is to be an encouragement. Is don't be impressed by temporary worldly triumphs over the church or the gospel over you, but be bold and courageous. Go, as Jesus calls us to do. Fight the good fight. Keep your eyes fixed on what is to come, having that hope as the anchor for the soul. As we do this, we'll have this overwhelming joy and this contentment of no matter what happens to us, I'm safe within him. I want to invite the band up as we do each week to respond to what God has said to us. And I want to say that as we, as we sing these next three songs, that I want us to be people who rejoice that we have the victory. I think sometimes... Sometimes as, as, as followers of Jesus and of Christians, I was thinking about this this morning after my sermon. Often my best thoughts come after my sermon. Anyway, um, I was thinking this morning after my sermon is, I think as, as a people, you know, Paul commands us to rejoice. Because this hope that we have is secured in a historical event that happened, Jesus' death and his resurrection. 
And we have all the reason to rejoice, all the reason to have hope that no matter what happens to us, we have a God who's in control, who loves us, and we are heading home. That frees us now to live as people who can rejoice. And I would love us to be people who radiate this joy because we know our God. And I think sometimes if we can't rejoice amongst Christians, where can we rejoice? So I want, I want, I want Sydney to be a place where we are happy in God. We are the blessed people, the happy people, because of not of our circumstances, because of who we, have, who we are in Jesus and what we have in Him. Let me give you time to reflect, to think what God has said to you, and to pray about things, and then we're going to rejoice together as a body of Jesus who knows that we have victory.